Hey, welcome. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Check the Mark. I'm Mark Lucero, and we are through Wimbledon. So kind of going to wrap up Wimbledon this episode. We've got a great show for you. Laura Robson is my guest today. I'm really excited that we were able to schedule some time to chat. I ran into her at the All England Club. Laura and I kind of got to know each other this year at the Australian Open. We were both doing television there. We were hanging out in the green room, talking a lot of tennis in between broadcasts. So we'll get to her. Laura does most of her work for Amazon Prime. I have to tell the American listeners that, you know, in England, I don't know Europe, but in England for sure, Amazon Prime has the rights to tennis. So they really have a great crew and like she's one of the best analysts out there. So you're really missing something. Let's wrap up Wimbledon. Novak Djokovic won again. He beat Nick Kyrgios in the final. Nick Kyrgios obviously took up a lot of oxygen. However, at the same time, Nick drove up ratings. I saw ESPN's ratings were up 22% from last year. So that's good for tennis. Nick puts butts in the seats, puts eyeballs in the game. And like him or hate him, he gets people talking about tennis, gets people talking about him, and gets people talking about big matches like that match with Novak Djokovic was going to be. Obviously, the, one of the key storylines was Rafa Nadal, his quest to try to get three quarters of the way to a Grand Slam. He came up short with an injury. He's been battling injuries all year, ran the foot, the rib, and now a seven millimeter tear in an ab. And if you've ever had a tear in your ab, man, that thing is painful when you're trying to play tennis. I don't know how he did it beating Taylor Fritz. It's so painful when you're trying to serve. And when it gets to the point where it's hurting on ground strokes, like it started to do for him, that's a bad injury. So he pulled out. He didn't take the court in the semis against Kyrgios. That's an extra couple days for Nick Kyrgios to think about. People talk about Nick being rested for the final. It's an extra couple days to think about maybe the biggest match of your life. So I'm sure that was playing a factor against Novak Djokovic, a person who he's done that turnaround the semi the quarter to semi to final turnaround plenty of times and you know he I think won his eighth title so congratulations to him can't argue with greatness and when he goes into that mode where he's not making errors where he's popping first serves he's not lighting up the gun but he's putting first serves in the corners he's so difficult to beat on the women's side we had Elena Rybakina not out of nowhere but she is probably someone who most people wouldn't have picked as their favorite to win the title, but she has a big game. Grass late in the tournament, you can really exploit it. Even this grass now, when it starts to get worn out, you hit, you know, you hit the dirt with one of those balls or you hit kind of a weird spot where it's half grass, half dirt, the ball can do some tricky things. And I think Anz Jabour in the final just didn't have enough firepower to hurt her. I think sometimes in these, I think especially on a quicker court, Jabour can get a little exposed because her plan A doesn't necessarily put their opponent, her, her opponent on their heels. She kind of uses trickery and guile and, and some finesse, stuff that works well on the slow courts when she can really change the rhythm of the match. On the quicker court, if someone's on her, attacking her early, there's really not a lot that she can do to defend and neutralize the point. This was a great tournament, I thought, on both ends, the men's and women's games. Obviously, the elephant in the room had to be the missing Russian players who were not allowed entry into the United Kingdom or the event. A few players obviously fit that criteria. And the men, I think you had four or five in the top 100. And the women, obviously a much bigger number. However, the All England Club's decision to pull points, excuse me, the tourist decision to pull points from the All England Club's event, I think hurt 90-something, 100-something players 
players that would have career results. I'm thinking of Jason Kubler or even like a Taylor Fritz making a semi if he's trying to make the year-end championships. All kind of Liam Brody who made a run, a Heather Watson who made a fourth round on, Isla Tomjanovic who made a deep run, even a Cam Norrie. Players made these runs, potentially career-changing runs that would earn them entry into the summer events, into the Australian warm events, into the Australian Open main draw. These players are getting hurt and it's Messing up the rankings, you had players take massive drops who couldn't defend their points. Novak Djokovic, it's not going to hurt him, but to see Novak win the title and drop to seven in the world, it just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So I really think the Tour has really missed the mark. I think the whole point of pulling points from the tournament is to make it less of a tournament and to make fewer players play. But in the end, pretty much everybody played. So the Tour is kind of left looking like powerless in that situation and... The All England Club is showing that, yep, they're the big dog because they paid out the money, they held the event, and people showed up. All that being said, we are now looking forward to the U.S. Open. We're kind of in those dog days of summer. There's some random European clay court events. Newport's happening right now. You have a lot of American players coming. Actually, I have a great field there. They have Andy Murray's there, Felix Auger, Ali Asim. We're midweek in the Newport event, midweek, obviously, in Bastad and some of these events. Pretty soon, we'll turn our sights Completely North America. We have Atlanta coming up, Cabo, obviously Montreal Cincy for the men, Toronto Cincy for the women, and then that's the leading to the US Open. That's when you'll see all the big guns, the big dogs head over from Europe, from South America, from Asia, from Russia, wherever they are, provided that they're vaccinated. That's again another talking point that we'll hit probably down the road. Novak Djokovic unlikely to play in the United States until the Biden administration changes course and removes the requirement for non citizens to have a vaccination when entering the US. So the ball's in his court. If he wants to do it, he can. And, and if he wants to play, he can, provided he meets those criteria. If not, then no tournament, and we'll catch him probably later in the uh, indoor part of the year in Europe or Asia. There's going to be events in Japan this fall, Korea, no events in China, it seems, and then the European indoor events. But like I said, a lot of hardcore tennis in the United States still to go. It's a great time of year. A lot of humidity, a lot of heat. If you're an American player, you don't mind playing some of these Euros early in these events. Give me a Euro who just came over, especially someone from Northern Europe. Give me them first round in D.C., first round in Cabo, wherever it is. <laughs> I like whoever's across the net. I like their chances. Let's get to my interview with Laura Robson. This was a real treat after the break. All right. On Check the Mark for the very first time, I want to welcome... A new friend of mine, Laura Robson. Laura, welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. So just to familiarize you, I mean, with our audience, I'm sure everyone knows who you are, but just run through some career highlights of yours. You know, at 18, you made the round of 16 at the U.S. Open. The following year, round of 16 at Wimbledon, reached a career high, 27 in the world. And one of the things that I kind of remember most clearly was you carrying... Andy Murray to a silver medal in the 2012 <laughs> Olympics. I'm sure he remembers it differently. <laughs> <laughs> that, that must have been some heavy lifting. It was fun. It was a good week. And uh, it's always one, one of those weeks to look back on with so much positivity um, just because of how well the rest of the team did. And, and it was the first time I'd pretty much ever played for team gb and have it be that serious you know i'd played like billy jean king cup or, or fed cup as it used to be called and all these like under 18 um team events but yeah nothing to the scale of the olympics so it was it was super cool 
So what was it like in between points? You know, he's nervous. I'm sure you're calming him down, saying, Andy, don't worry. If it's through the middle, I'll take it. <laughs> what, what, what was it like in between points? Um, I honestly can't remember. I think I just knew that he was guaranteed to make every single return. Um, so I was like, right, I'll just do the best that I can and, and try and, you know, make a couple of returns myself uh, so that he has a chance on the break points because I was playing on, on the juice side. Yeah, and I just tried to cross a little bit here and there and um, just do my best at covering my side of the court. But you knew that he had it covered. So now you're doing a lot of work for Amazon Prime. In my opinion, I think you're actually one of the best analysts out there right now. You know, we kind of got to talk a lot of tennis in the green room this year down in Australia where we were both doing some TV. Wimbledon just ended. You were doing TV. You were playing the legends. I'm sure you had appearances and you know, commitments for sponsors, different things. Is this the busiest time of year for you? Oh, yeah, for sure. The last two weeks um, was actually the last month, really. It's been crazy because uh, the week before I was doing Eastbourne commentary and also playing in, in the exhibition event at the Hurlingham Club, um, which is a really nice combination. It's pretty much the only tennis I play all year, um, which is all done now for the, for the last couple of weeks. And I don't plan to pick up a racket. Uh, anytime soon because my body is broken after the last few weeks. I'm <laughs> um, just trying to get on court and, and train for a couple of hours. So I didn't let my partner down. Um, but it, it's been so fun. It's one of those things where you feel like hungover the day after Wimbledon because it all comes crashing down and you've got no reason to sort of get up at, at 6 a.m. And um, I'm sure you know the feeling as well. Like the day after a slam when you're doing TV feels so much worse than when you're playing it <laughs> well it's so much work that goes into behind the scenes i think a lot of people think maybe like the analysts don't do as much you know research as the play-by-play -play, which is probably true but still there's a fair amount of research that, that goes in and that was to be honest one of the things you know i noticed about you and, and chanda and some of the other analysts that were you know spending all that time in the green room in melbourne was the amount of research that you do yeah i i always think it's handy to know um, obviously all the basics, um, but the play-by-play -play would have that covered for sure. But just so I know as well what they're planning on bringing up. And um, I sort of like to, that's my dog in the background, if you hear her. Um, but I sort of like to start texting people in the, in the locker room, different coaches that I still keep in touch with, agents, just for sort of any uh, loose information that maybe they want me to say as well which I always think is a is a good conversation starter because a lot of the players want to get something out there and um you know have a, a point of view on a, on a lot of things going on in their game so I, yeah I think I just try and stay on top of things um but I'd be yeah the in general the analyst has the easy role don't they they don't have to cover quite so many topics through the match and you just follow the the play-by-plays lead so w one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is playing at Wimbledon as a hometown player. You know, Cam Norrie made a run to the semis this year. Obviously, the spotlight's been on Emma Raducanu since last year, her Wimbledon, then obviously her U.S. Open. You know, you won junior Wimbledon at 14 and then made a run a few years later. What's it like playing that tournament, being from, you know, being an English player, being from Great Britain and having all eyes on you? Um, it's weird. I never really noticed it when I was playing because um, I think I was always 
not as anywhere near of a, as big of a deal as Andy. Um, so he took a lot of the pressure off my shoulders in so many ways. And um, I, I think that's what's almost nice about it now for the Brits is you've got Andy coming back, um, Emma obviously doing well, and Cam, and uh, not just Cam, but Heather Watson did well this year, made the fourth round of a slam for the first time, Harriet Dart, Katie Bolter, all of these players. And I think just having that depth um, take some of the pressure off your shoulders. But, I mean, you, you've seen it, just the <laughs> the level of an intensity and the TV cameras that are following, you know, every single one of Emma's practices. By the time Cam was in the semis, he was <laughs> he was taking a, a lot of pressure as well. Um, but I think in general, it's sort of, in the UK, tennis is a big sport for about two weeks, and then it goes off the grid slightly. Um, so... Once once Wimbledon's been and gone, everyone goes back to their, their day-to-day life and you don't really feel it as much. It was just interesting because when you're there, it's just a, such a different feeling from the other tournaments because you're not just the TV channels, but you have the newspapers and then the... I mean, the gossip rags that would love to be called newspapers. (laughs) There's tennis people, especially hometown, home country players that are on the cover. And like, especially, obviously, Emma, even Cam, as the tournament wound down, that are on the covers nearly every day. Yeah, back page of the newspapers, just about every day, they try and uh, put a tennis player on there, I think, for the whole 14 days. Um, So it's just best if you're playing to just not pick up the paper for the two weeks and um, try and avoid it because it's it's a lot and it's one of those tournaments where I think more than most other events um, people who don't work in the sport have access to press conferences and and you know all the all the interview areas so you could just get asked some random things and it's to be honest it's probably the same for the American players at US Open or the Aussie players at um Aussie Open, but I I think just what, from what I've experienced, it's um, one of those tournaments where you just get asked some really strange non questions. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a strange question, but it kind of has to do with tennis. So rumor has it, especially you know upstairs in the guys' locker room, like where where we hang out. I want you to set the record straight. The members' locker room downstairs. We hear that there's bathtubs and there's members who like to go in there and draw a bath like during the year and chill out. Is that true? Yes, that is true. <laughs> so the the downstairs locker rooms, the Cedar Player locker rooms during the tournament, um, but there are usual member locker rooms uh, for the rest of the year, and so yeah, they do they do run your bath. Um, <laughs> Jane amazing. Jane, the ladies' locker room attendant, runs the perfect temperature. I can never. <laughs> recreate it at home so if i do have a bath it does tend to be at wimbledon which um, <laughs> i mean who, who wouldn't um, want that i will say yeah and um, <laughs> and one one of the other british coaches you must know uh, colin beecher mm. he'll go there sometimes just to shave um because <laughs> oh he keeps God. everything in his locker and yeah it just likes the whole process <laughs> <laughs> well it's funny because we hear from you know i've heard like random english players I like a putting green though in the men's one this is true but it's it's uh it's not permanent they roll it out there and they but the, uh, the good thing is they bring like 10 different putters so if you're like a mallet guy or a blade putter you can have the putter that feels just like home uh, we don't have any of that the ladies <laughs> locker room i think is smaller um but we, yeah there's a sauna and steam room and stuff which is quite nice 
the water pressure is outstanding in the showers. All the showers at the All England Club that I've found, the water pressure, it's very <laughs> un-European or un-English because people come to the U.S. and they complain, oh, the water pressure. Uh, yeah, well, I haven't noticed, but I'll be sure <laughs> to let the club know that you approve. Yeah, so my feedback is, uh, is very positive. So, 10 out of 10, water pressure. <laughs> yes, make a note. So I want to talk about your playing career a little bit. You came up and you, you spent some time in Florida, right? Yeah, so I used to train at IMG um, down in Bradenton. Uh, so I was living there for a couple of years. And even before that, I was at um, Nick Saviano's on and off um, throughout my childhood, basically. I went there for the first time when I was about 11 or 12 um, and kept in touch with Nick through the years. So I, I was there probably when I was like 19, 20, uh, on and off again. Um, I'm getting all my years mixed up now because it all blends into one. <laughs> yeah. But, um, How did you like yeah, being part-time so, in the U.S.? Did you like that? Um, yeah, yeah. Braden, well, Bradenton, I mean, there's nothing to do but play tennis. Um, so it was nice to go home when I had a chance um, just to see my friends and family. But to be honest, my parents would come with me all the time because they loved golf and fishing. Um, so it was like ideal for them, maybe not so much for me as a as a 19 year old. But um, no, I, I have friends in Miami as well. So I'd sort of try and go visit them, still try and have a slightly normal life as well. Um, but it's different, isn't it? It's, it's impossible to compare London to hmm. Florida in, in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. So I was looking through some of your your player record, some of the tournaments kind of when you were breaking through, some of the players you were beating in qualies to qualify for some of your first main draws and then players that you were beating early in these events when you were kind of making your move. The, the list is, is, is unbelievable, but you beat like a Halep who was ranked 100 in the world, yeah. a Kerber who was like well into the double digits, Osaka, Kleisters, Lina, Muguruza, Venus. What kind of insight, I guess, does that give you now when you watch some of these players still playing you know, know, knowing how you basically took him out when you went head to head. Well, I, I remember the match against Halep because it was in uh, the Tokyo WTA qualies and it was so hot that day. And it was like four in the third, one of these marathon matches. Um, and I, I think if you asked her about it, she would not remember whatsoever <laughs> because this is probably 15 years ago now. Um, but it was it was one of those matches where I was just, coming through and and I won that and she was the heavy favorite and that was the first time I was really like oh wow I, I think I could probably win matches in the main draw now because she was um already you know I think at that point she was just outside maybe like what first or second seed in qualies um and I believe that I'd got in either as a wild card or like last direct acceptance um so it was, yeah that was a a good turning point but all the other matches I mean you just play whoever's in front of you on the day and uh, try not to think about who who they are. I, I played Venus in the first round and then I played Serena in the second round. Um, so that was <laughs> double whammy. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's ever beaten them back to back. I'm not sure. I, I didn't look that stat up. Yeah, I don't know, actually. Maybe. I don't. You don't see it so often. Um, I mean, they're not playing the same uh, tournaments so much anymore, but... Um, yeah, that was that was cool. <laughs> it sure was. So 
It's funny because back in the, back in the day when you were playing, I was coaching someone from the USTA who was around, I think, 10 or 11. But she was a person who I was going to project like you. She was going to be tall. Right? Her dad was pretty tall. I think she ended up being around 5'10". She was left-handed. And I said, you have to play like Laura Robson. You have to have that good <laughs> slice serve, hit your spots, and then just hammer forehands, move out of the middle, crush your forehand inside out, and make the girls kind of play back to you. And I, I think your game style kind of preceded the era just a little bit yeah i was i was always trying to open the forehand line that was my go-to who were you working with at the time because i well, remember seeing you yeah work, so working with like a lot of the american girls but I can't yeah so after i left the usta i started working with Jeannie bouchard that would have been 2013 you guys actually played in charleston oh yeah i remember that that was <laughs> i think that wasn't that like Long, long match, something like five and a third as well. It, it was a very long match. Yeah, I was like breaking out in hives. I was like nervous. Yeah. And all that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I always used to want to play fast, keep the points short. And, um, you know, when Kvitova was winning Wimbledon and um, playing outrageous tennis, my mum would just send me clips of her being like, basically replicate this and do what she's doing and play like a, a proper left-hander because I, sometimes I would, you know, not use the leftiness as, as much as um, I, I should have. And now when I commentate, I'm like, wow, I, I should have been going swing it out wide every single time because you see how much people struggle with it, even if you go there 10 times out of 10. Yeah, it's amazing how many lefties don't use their leftiness to the full advantage. Yeah, I, I think when you you're doing it you're like oh it's too obvious I'm, I've been going there um for the first couple of games of the match so I'm gonna mix it up and it's like no I, <laughs> why was I overthinking it so much and I'm sure if I watched any uh replays of my matches I'd just be like what am I doing I should be going tea on the juice wide on the ad every single time <laughs> it's true so you mentioned that you don't play much tennis throughout the year. Obviously, you know, it's impact on your body. What do you like to do? Are you competitive and someone who needs a competitive outlet? You just like to stay active. What do you like to do for fun, I guess, away from, you know, when you're calling matches? Um, I would play tennis um, way more often if it wasn't so bad for my hip. Uh, basically, rotating into my left side mm. just really sets it off, um, which is why I've sort of decided to take a step back after some heavy juicy matches um over the last couple of weeks because obviously the ladies invitational was super serious this year <laughs> and um i play a lot of paddle i play huge amounts of paddle so i'm on a, a couple of ladies teams um trying to join in with the gb training camps as well um that's just like half the size of a tennis court and you can play off the wall so it ends up being a lot easier but that's sort of where I can get my match play um and then I yeah I guess I just mix everything else up I'm not trying to do performance hmm. stuff in the gym anymore I just do what I enjoy is pickleball growing in your area no, no? pickleball's no. pickleball's not quite taken off here I think paddle's definitely the one um so they're building new paddle courts in pretty much every club around London wow. and it's really tough to get a call actually because everyone's so keen for it um so that's yeah pickleball I feel is less physical <laughs> it's so not physical yeah <laughs> 
I didn't want to word it that that way, but yeah, it's it's more of a. I feel like it's more badminton than <laughs> it's tennis. True. Yeah, I think it's it's pretty fun. But if you want to get a workout, it's not what you're looking for. No. So I'll stick to paddle. <laughs> yeah, uh, which is pretty fun. I've played a couple times, but there's not that many places to play around here. We have kind of paddle or pop tennis, which is at the beach in Venice. But then there's the proper, I think, paddle or padel that you're talking about with the walls that you can play off of. There's a couple of courts in San Diego. There's maybe one or two in L.A., but it, it's it's starting to grow, but not the infrastructure in the same way, you know? Yeah, it's just that extra bit of space that you need compared to pickleball, and then you need to build the walls up and stuff, so it's not quite as straightforward. So are you but coming to New York? It. Will we see you at the Open? Yeah, I'll be there um, for TV um, right the way through. So first first day to last day, um, which is nice because I've done the last couple of years not on site. Um, so this is the first time being back in New York for probably, well, probably two years pre-COVID that I was last there to play. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm pumped. I'm pumped to go shopping, pumped to go to my coffee places and just to like actually enjoy the vibe of uh, the US Open. Oh, it, it's so fun. I mean, the thing I've enjoyed going to some of these tournaments to doing TV, especially when I haven't been coaching, is that it really doesn't matter who wins. I mean, you just enjoy the tennis no. and you hope for good <laughs> matches. Much less stress. <laughs> yeah. So I want to finish with a trivia question for you. There's six people who have beaten Kim Clijsters at the U.S. Open. Can you name them? Okay. So me, Serena. <laughs> yeah. Um. I'll start with the easy ones. <laughs> I want to say Venus, probably. Yeah. Um, Capriati. Close. Someone who plays like her. Also mm -hmm. American. There's an American, a French, and a Belgian. French. Oh, uh, Justine. Marez no, yeah, Belgian. Justine. And I gave you Maresmo. Yeah. Another American. Why am I blanking? I was going to say like Wozniacki, but that's... No, Lindsay Davenport. Ah, of course. So you're in pretty good company there. I was thinking more of a younger age group, actually. But then Kim actually didn't play it in the, the latest comeback. Um, so yeah, good company. I'll take it. <laughs> Very good company. Well, listen, Laura, I'm so grateful for you for making some time for me and for my little show. Uh, it, you know, it was great seeing you in Wimbledon. And I look forward to catching up in New York. Yeah, looking forward to it. All right, Laura, thank you so much. Have a great day. See you soon. That's it for this week's episode of Check the Mark. I'm Mark Lucero. Big thanks to Laura for coming on. Like she said, we are all in that post-Wimbledon hangover phase, especially tennis watchers out here on the West Coast or even on the East Coast. So nice waking up in the morning, 6, 7, 8, whatever it is, flipping on ESPN, catching matches all day long across the globe. But now we're in the summer. U.S. Open Series we're looking forward to. I'm going to try to do a good job of hitting each stop on the U.S. Open Series with one of these podcasts. Hit me up at Mark Lucero on Twitter, at Mark Lucero on Instagram. Give me some feedback. Let me know what you want to hear, who you want me to talk to. And that's it. Have a good one. Oh, subscribe, rate, and review. Don't forget, wherever you get your podcast. Catch you later. I am out.